Let's turn in the Gospel of John to the ninth chapter and take up a few more verses there, as many as we can, in the next following scenes. We've had scene one presented to us. It covered the first seven verses of his actual healing and included the five valuable verses preceding the healing by laying a foundation for it. There's more details about this particular miracle of Jesus than most in the Bible, especially that foundation leading into it to give us a good basis for viewing that miracle from the Lord's standpoint and from the man's standpoint. Now we're going to get a number of scenes following of him being interrogated by neighbors, Pharisees, his parents being interrogated by the Pharisees, and then he again before the Lord meets him the second time. Let me read to you verses 8 through 12. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay, and anointed mine eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. And so that gives us scene two. The man born blind, now seeing, is asked some questions by his neighbors and others, travelers that knew he was a man born blind and had been blind his whole life. The neighbors, therefore, now he had come back to the place where he was, and Jesus is gone, because it tells us in the last part of verse 7 that after he had gone to the pool of Siloam and washed, he came seeing. He came where? He came back to where he had been. He didn't come back to Jesus because Jesus wasn't there. But he came back to where he had been, where his neighbors, who had grown up beside him, would be able to testify and would know in their own, by their own observations that he had truly been blind. And those travelers that went through that area didn't, were not neighbors, but they knew also that he was blind because every time they passed through that particular street or area, they had seen him sitting there begging. And so they're asking questions of him. Is not this he that sat and begged? Folks, is this the same man that we've seen? The neighbors are asking and the travelers are asking, can this possibly have happened? We're so used to him being blind. And, you know, we've speculated that maybe it's been 35 years because for him to be of age, for to speak for himself in front of the Pharisees, it, would have, it wasn't youth, and it, he's never called a youth or a child in this passage. He is called a man. We start with that, and then we work off the fact that the Jews didn't really listen to anyone's opinion short of 30 anyway. That's why John and Jesus didn't enter upon their ministries until they were 30. And so with this man's been blind for some time and known to be blind. Is this really him? The greater your knowledge of certain facts, the more difficult their change. And the more dramatic the miracle, the greater your knowledge of the facts of a case, like in this particular case. There would have been the option or possibility of confusing another man, and so they are asking that question. Rather than resent the question, allow it to be part of a buildup to a miracle. 
that they would be wondering among themselves, could this possibly have happened because it was so dramatic and so impossible to human reasoning? When begging is all you can do, then beg. Prayerfully, intelligently, respectfully. There's something everyone could do, and they should do it. When the widows Naomi and Ruth had nothing, Ruth went to glean. And was that a good choice on their parts? That's the welfare system that we like. You have to do something because we don't give handouts. But our nation is sick. Ruth and Naomi were widows, and they went and gleaned a field. It was hard work. It was hot work. You only got a little bit at a time as you went and checked out the corners of fields where the reapers had turned and left a little bit in the corners, and they were not supposed to go back and clean those corners. But when Ruth went to glean on behalf of her and Naomi, did it turn out okay? Things turn out okay when you do it the Lord's way and you work. She met Boaz. Boaz married her, and they are the great-grandparents of David and parents of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do anything less than what you can and should do, you sin. James 4.17 tells us that when we know to do good and we don't do it, it's sin to us. There's few things as disgusting as someone not doing what they could or should do. This man did it, and we're told that in verse 8, because they asked the question, is not this he that sat and begged? So he had to come and take his place daily and then beg. Tell everybody that he was blind. The travelers even knew he was blind. Those that weren't even his neighbors knew he was blind. Verse 9, some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. But he said, I am he. And so there's this clarification going on with neighbors, travelers, and the man himself that he was the one that had been born blind and could now see. Some knew him well enough to say that he was the blind man, though he was now seeing which he would have been acting differently. Instead of tapping around or asking for directions or sitting, he was now moving around and exchanging with people and looking into the windows of their soul. Our eyes are special devices that way in that we can see more of the expression of what we're thinking and feeling through those windows of our soul than anything else. And they could recognize that from him now. They wouldn't have known that before in, in the same way. It would have been difficult to affirm his identity, and so they had to admit a real miracle here. Some may have known about Christ's power, but they did not doubt the glorious display here that this man was now seeing. Others said he's like him. This audience was generally limited to those knowing he'd been born blind because of his sign or whatever he said to them while he was begging, not the neighbors. The neighbors would have known him better than the travelers that just knew of a particular man that sat here and begged. And they may not have known the healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ personally and firsthand like this. We have found that the majority or a large part of our Lord's healing miracles were done up in Galilee about 70 or 80 miles away because Jerusalem was too dangerous for him to be on many occasions due to them wanting to kill him. Remember, it's back as far as John chapter 5 we learned that when Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda, and it said at that pool there lay a great multitude of impotent and sick folk waiting to get into the troubled water, but he only healed one. He only healed one. The passage that I read to you today was taking place up in Galilee. 
that I read to you from Matthew chapter 12 earlier today about him healing them all. And it was a large crowd and a large multitude that followed him. It was up there. And so here we have him, and some of these may not have known the power of Christ yet. They may not have known who had healed him because he's explaining and he introduces Jesus to them. And they ask, where is he? And he doesn't know in this second scene of the healing. Here are the first words we get from the man born blind. I am he. I am he. Why don't you know who I am? Why are you questioning who I am? I am he. You're asking among yourselves, I was blind. I did beg. I did sit here. These are my neighbors. You did see me when you passed by. I didn't see you, but you did see me when you passed by this way. I am he. This man, young enough to have living parents, dealt with objective reality, and we like that about him. He is just simple, to the point, and plain. There was no other man. He lived at the same place. He will not let convenience, convention, fear, or politics alter his judgment. He knew basic identity logic and the necessary consequences of the miracle. For those God has truly saved, they know regardless of others and what others may think of God's grace in their lives. And you should know that about your life. Verse 10, Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? If you're him that sat here and begged, how were your eyes opened? This is an incredible thing. How did it happen? His bold testimony was enough to convince them to move to their next question. And that was not, are you him? It's, how did this happen? And here's another therefore to indicate the growing evidence of a miraculous display. Because it says, therefore said they unto him, meaning they accepted his statement that he was the man. This is a logical progression from seeing a man that you believe is a man that was born blind. Now seeing that man confirms it. And so you're moving toward the miracle. How did it happen? How were thine eyes open? Jesus wasn't present there. Jesus had dealt with him. Obviously not so much with the neighbors. Or they would have known all this. Jesus found the man. And it just says he saw the man. He didn't go to the school of the blind. He didn't entertain or preach to a large audience in verses 1 through 5. He's dealing with that man. And he heals that man. Now that man is explaining to the neighbors that lived around him what had just happened to him. Such a miraculous change had occurred, it was logical to ask how it had happened. Jesus was not present for God's glory yet. His role had to be discovered. And so the Bible is leading us through these scenes of discovery. Verse 11, he answered and said, He's been asked, how were you made to see? How did you get over and cured from permanent blindness from birth? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Now that is just a simple, straightforward, perfect, plain recounting of the facts. It's not embellished, it's not exaggerated, and he doesn't get all emotional about it. He just states it clearly as to what had happened. It's almost amusing. We have another place in the Bible where it's almost amusing, or it is amusing. It's, and you don't need to turn there, I'll just read a little passage to you from Jeremiah chapter 36, where... Baruch, the secretary for Jeremiah, is questioned about how the Bible comes into being. 
Tell us now, Baruch, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? How does inspiration take place? Then Baruch answered them, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yes, yeah. How were you made blind? Well, a man named Jesus made mud, made clay, put it on my eyes, told me to go wash. I went, I washed, I see. No embellishment, no explanation about the therapeutic virtue of spit clay. Nothing. But it's all leading toward the Lord Jesus Christ, a man named Jesus. We've got a man named Jesus. This is more than we had to this man and to those that were around him. And we're going to know that that man Jesus is Christ and the Son of God by the time we get to the end of this chapter. This is our second opportunity to learn the character of this man born blind. He was objective. He wasn't emotional. He wasn't subjective. He just stated the facts. This is the way I was. I am he. This is what a man named Jesus said to me. This is what happened. This is what he told me to do. I went and did it, and now I'm seeing. There isn't much more to it than that. He recounted facts. And so there's a miracle here, and he's recounting it. And he tells it in its details. And you, know under, you understand verse 11 because we've already had it in verses 6 and 7. So we go to verse 12. Verse 12, Then said they unto him, Where is he? This man Jesus, who had just given him sight. And he said, I know not. The crowd did not ask more about Jesus, but rather where he might then be. Since he wasn't there, he, Jesus had slipped away like he did even at the pool of Bethesda. Where is he? If someone were to ask you, where is Jesus Christ? Would you be able to lead them to Jesus Christ? Would you be able to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ and where he sits at this hour? When he came to earth, why he came to earth, and what he did when he was on earth, that he is coming again, and what he will do when he comes again, and how there will be a great division among men because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is he now? He's sitting at the right hand of God, but he's with us today as well by his Spirit, which we've already considered. Where is he? You know, the Ethiopian eunuch said about Isaiah 53, is the prophet writing here about himself or about some other man? And you can just see the smile and glow on Philip's face with a question like that. And he preached to him Jesus and explained Isaiah 53. That is not Isaiah talking about himself. That is Isaiah talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. You are coming from Jerusalem right now. You know that a change has taken place in that city. And there are people that are called Christians that are worshiping this Jesus of Nazareth. I'll tell you about him. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Are you able to do that? You should be able to do that. The man didn't know where Jesus was at this time. That it won't be for long. Let's go to scene three. The first exchange with the Pharisees. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. Let me read down through verse 17. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Verse 15. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed, and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. 
Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. Now they wanted to interview the parents before they put any more trust in the words that they were getting from the blind man because the blind man wanted to make Jesus, he knew his name, into a prophet. And the Pharisees didn't want to make Jesus into anything. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. These neighbors, acquaintances, and travelers had not mentioned the Sabbath yet, but they want to bring this man born blind to the Pharisees. And the next information that we're going to be given in verse 14, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay. And so with that help and that hint, we understand that they were so particular and meticulous about keeping the Sabbath day that these friends were going to take the man born blind to the Pharisees because this event had taken place, travel. Just, you got to understand the mentality of a Pharisee about the Sabbath. Remember the disciples walking through a cornfield, picked some corn, rubbed a little bit off in their hands and ate. It wasn't corn that you're thinking of. Rubbed a little bit off and ate. And they immediately jumped on them for harvesting and anything else that they could think of to, to accuse them as having sinned against the Sabbath. And see, this is going to be called a sin. Sin against the Sabbath. Because any violation of the Sabbath... Remember John 5? The Pharisees find a man walking with his bed rolled up. What are you doing? It's the Sabbath day. Well, the man that healed me told me to take up my bed and walk. Do you all understand the principles that the Jews did not understand that we should understand about the Sabbath and about other commandments of God, that we should understand their intent, and we should understand that mercy is more important. Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That was defending violation of the Sabbath day for mercy. These Pharisees did it all the time, as Jesus liked to remind them. If they had an ox fall into a ditch, they'd pull the ox out. If they needed sheep led to watering, they would lead the sheep to watering on the Sabbath day for mercy toward their brute beasts. But mercy toward a man, to heal a man, they wouldn't. The healing can take place tomorrow. The ruler of the synagogue said in a place, well, why can't you water your sheep tomorrow? Total distorted priorities. We want to love every single individual soul that we meet that is not a hater of God. We want to love them one at a time and have compassion toward them like Jesus had toward this blind man, like Jesus had toward that lame man. But they did not have toward either man. Jesus later explained in John 7, we've been through these verses. In John chapter 7, Jesus explained how they would show kindness to their animals. They would circumcise a man on the Sabbath day. And he asked them, now that's strange. You will violate the Sabbath day to keep the law of Moses about circumcision. Circumcision is cutting a man, hurting that eight-year, eight-day-old baby. And you're upset at me for making a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Hello? Is that logical? Is that consistent? Is that fair? Is that just? And that's when he said right then, judge not by appearance, but judge righteous judgment. 
And we want to learn to do that. So they bring them to the Pharisees. The greatest enemies of Jesus Christ and Paul were the Pharisees and their followers. The Pharisees were the most conservative denomination of Israel's religion. The Bible tells us that about them. The straightest sect, the most restrictive, the most binding, the most conservative sect of the Jews' religion. Liberals really don't care about truth, so they can easily agree to disagree with you. But not fundamentalists. Fundamentalists want to argue about little things. And these Pharisees wanted to argue about little things. Jesus said, you make me sick with all your washing of hands and pots and cups and this and that, and yet you overlook the biggest things like the fear of God, the love of God, the love of neighbor, justice, judgment, mercy, and hope, and peace. We want to have the Lord's priorities. Matthew 23, 23 tells us, ye have omitted the weightier matters of the law. You Pharisees are so good at tithing your herb garden. Your mint, your anise, and your cumin, you make sure you pay tithes on your herbs. And yet you overlook judgment, mercy, and faith. Judgment and mercy and faith are more important. And when the Bible tells us a priority in in the Christian graces, we want to remember those things. And judgment is doing what is just and right. Mercy would be wanting this man to be healed no matter what day it was. Why was the Sabbath ever given? Because there's something special about the seventh day? No. The Sabbath was given as a day of rest for the Israelites, for their servants, and for their animals. Because in Egypt, they didn't get a day off in the week. The Sabbath was a particular blessing of God to the Israelites for a day of rest because they hadn't rested in Egypt. And it was for them and for them only. And it only lasted 1,500 years. It wasn't practiced for the first 2,500 years of the world. No one knew about the Sabbath in the book of Genesis. No one ever heard of the Sabbath in the book of Genesis. Pastor, I think you've missed that one. Pastor, in Genesis chapter 2, I can read that God rested the seventh day. You got me. I'm stupid. Who wrote Genesis chapter 2 about resting on the Sabbath day? And when did he write it? Moses wrote it 2,500 years after creation. Because all of a sudden he got a revelation when he went up on Mount Sinai about that seventh day. And he came down and gave it to Israel. And at the time when he gave them those commandments, he also gave them manna to feed them. And they did not understand the Sabbath day because the Bible tells us they did not understand that they could work six days, but they could not work on that seventh day, and if they did not get enough on the sixth day to cover the seventh day, there wasn't going to be any. This is one of the things that distinguishes our church about where we stand in the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to the Jews, and there's passages that I'm not going to turn you to right now. There's four primary passages that tell us it was a special commandment of a sign between God and Israel only. So for 2,500 years, the world did not observe the Sabbath. For 1,500 years, the world did observe the Sabbath, from Moses to Jesus and the apostles. And for the last 2,000 years, Christians have not observed the Sabbath. They meet on the first day of the week because it was changed to the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 tells us it's the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20 tells us it was the first day of the week when the, apostle, when the disciples of Jesus would gather together, break bread, pray, preach. Right. And that's when Paul preached to them at Troas. 
The Sabbath has been nailed to the cross along with other commandments that couldn't be kept, weren't kept by the Jews. Somebody will say, well, if you're going to get rid of one of the Ten Commandments, then I guess you people are libertines and you don't believe in any of the Ten Commandments. No, we believe in the Nine Commandments that the Apostle Paul brought forward into the New Testament. You can go to places like Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, where he will give you a list of the Ten Commandments, but guess which one he doesn't list? The Sabbath day, because that one went away. Someone will say, well, Jesus, Jesus went to worship on the Sabbath day. Yep, you got me again. I'm sorry, I'm so stupid. Why did Jesus worship on the Sabbath day? Because he was a Jew, born under the law. As Galatians chapter 4 tells us, why was he circumcised the eighth day? Somebody will, somebody will write me like they did last night, an email about this long, wanting to tell me that, uh, you know, the Bible says that we're supposed to keep the commandments of God, that the commandments never change. I wonder if that particular organization requires circumcision of all their members. Circumcision certainly changed. And let me tell you something. God's worship has changed drastically and dramatically, and it changed with Jesus, John, and the apostles. Amen. God doesn't change. God didn't change. His moral commandments didn't change. But the seventh day wasn't a moral commandment. The seventh day was a sign gift to Israel to have a day off and for their ass to have a day off and for their ox to have a day off, and it says that in the Word of God in four places. Okay, the Sabbath was huge, and if you get around, you will encounter people that you, you will need to help them with the Sabbath day. You know, the, the Sabbath was very important to God for the Israelites. In Numbers chapter 15, a man went out and picked up sticks on the Sabbath day, and they put him in the detention center, the hold, as it's called there. We would call it a detention center. And they asked Moses, what should we do with him? Moses asked God, stone him to death. Numbers 15. Because he presumptuously did it. He went out and picked up sticks when he should have picked them up on the previous day so that he didn't work on that seventh day. And so they stoned him. And then God told Israel, you make sure that you put a blue fringe on the borders of all your garments and that blue fringe is to remind you that I'm a holy God and you do not play with my commandments. That's Numbers 15. It's been preached to you before as blue fringe holiness. Because God is serious about us keeping his commandments and doing things his way. So it was important to God. And I've already mentioned this morning how that God took the Jews captive into Babylon for 70 years because they hadn't kept the Sabbath day like they should have. And so God said to them through the prophet Jeremiah and others, I'm going to take you captive into Babylon for 70 years. You're going to be there 70 years. Not seven days, not 70 days, not seven years, 70 years. You want the number seven? You don't like giving me the seventh day and taking it off? 70 years this land will have its Sabbath. And then he let them come back. So it's important. But the purpose of the Sabbath was rest. And do you know what the other word is used for the Sabbath of the Old Testament? refreshment refreshment if you could heal a man on the sabbath day would that give him greater refreshment Amen. a blind man being able to see would that refresh him a little bit Amen. that's the bible word and so i will have mercy and not sacrifice if you're faced with doing something nice for yourself or keeping the seventh day commandment do something nice for yourself is what jesus taught in matthew chapter 12 and he used the example of david and the showbread David was a little hungry with his men. They were running from King Saul. They came upon the tabernacle. Ahimelech, do you have anything here for us to eat? No. Well, what about the showbread? 
Well, David, only the priests are supposed to eat the showbread. Get it out here. Let's make sub sandwiches out of it. And they had sub sandwiches from the showbread that only the priests could eat. And Jesus is the one that brought this argument up. This is how we're supposed to read the Bible. This is why I'm emphasizing things from these verses for you that are of a practical nature because we want to draw lessons that help us in our lives to live better for the Lord. Jesus brought up the example of David. Jesus knew that it was not lawful for a man from the tribe of Judah to eat that showbread. That was for the priests only. The Bible tells us it was for the priests only. But David ate the showbread. Lightning didn't fall from heaven on David. Because David understood the mind and heart of God. He was the man after God's own heart. Mercy is more important than the commandment. You say, well, if we took that too far, we would end up compromising everything in the name of mercy, yes? And so we're not going to take it too far. But we're going to take it. Do we have a couple in this church today that are in Charleston celebrating their 16th anniversary? Are they laying out of the house of God? You mean just down there having fun? Who knows what they could be doing right now? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Could they be sitting in a restaurant just eating? Did they have to be fasting and praying while we're here meeting? How do we make our decision? I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Does the Bible tell us not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is? It tells us that. But we are happy where they are. And we're happy whatever they're doing. And we're glad for them. And the Lord's taught us this. Thank you, Lord. It tells us in verse 14, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And that sheds some light on verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. Associations of churches, conventions of churches, denominations of churches, and such intimidate churches. These people were intimidated by the religious rulers to bring this man born. What should they have been doing? You should have heard. They should have been celebrating the man born blind. Was now seeing. They should have been celebrating, but instead... They're wanting to bring him to the Religious Ministerial Association to find out what the united voice of the ministers has to say about this kind of an event. And what did they have? They hated Jesus Christ so much, as Matthew 12 told us, they conspired together and had a meeting to destroy him. We owe our allegiance to the head of our church and the general assembly which is in heaven above. Your allegiance isn't to your pastor. Your allegiance is to the word of God. And our allegiance is to the head of our church, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the whole company of the redeemed that are in heaven watching us. But we're not afraid of men, but we are afraid of him who told us to be afraid of him. So the, the Bible tells us, tells us in Philippians chapter 2 through Paul that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus told us, fear not them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. And so we fear God, his son Jesus Christ, the apostolic writings of the New Testament, and wherever your pastor might fit in way below that in trying to lead the congregation to practice what the Bible says. But these people are subservient to these Sabbath-worshipping, Christ-hating Pharisees, fundamentalists of that day. Verse 14, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened their eyes. And I've just said enough about the Sabbath day. Jesus had already felt the Jews' wrath for healing on the Sabbath day back in John chapter 5 
about the impotent man healed at the pool of Bethesda. Why did he not wait until the next day to cure his blindness? To expose the Jews, to heal the man, to show some mercy. Compare Paul's wisdom to circumcise. You've got to, you should be asking, did Jesus know that it was the Sabbath? Did Jesus know that if he healed the man born blind on the Sabbath, he was going to get into trouble? Yes. Why did he heal the man born blind on the Sabbath? To expose them and to show mercy. Think about Paul, because we want to learn wisdom from this. Jesus went ahead and did something that was offensive. You know, the disciples once came to Jesus and said, don't you know what you just said to the Pharisees about what goes in the mouth goes out into the draft? Don't you know that you just offended them? Who cares if I offended them? They're blind leaders of the blind. Let them both fall into the ditch. Every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. That was his answer. There is a time to be discreet and prudent, and there's a time not to be. Follow the Apostle Paul and circumcision. In Acts chapter 16, he's at the cities of Lystra and Derbe, and he finds a wonderful young man named Timothy who has a great reputation of the believers in that area. But his father was a Greek, so Timothy hadn't been circumcised. Do you know his mother? Do you know Timothy's grandmother? Had they taught him well? Was he a fearer and worshiper of God? But he hadn't been circumcised because his father was a Greek. The women would have. There's wisdom in that, but I'm not going to chase that one right now. I hope that everybody can see the wisdom already right there. Who's the head of that home? The father was. Who did Timothy really belong to the most? The father. He wasn't circumcised. What did Paul do? Circumcised him right then so that he would have a better audience of the Jews in that area when he preached with Paul. Jump over to Galatians chapter 2. Paul comes after 14 years to visit the church and city of Jerusalem, and he brings Titus with him. Titus was a Gentile and wasn't circumcised. But there in Jerusalem, Paul could sense that there was a sect in the church that was pushing circumcision, the law of Moses. Just go read Acts 15 about the Council of Jerusalem to see that sect there of Pharisees. He would not circumcise Titus because he wasn't going to give them even an inch that they were going to intimidate Gentiles into being circumcised. So Timothy, he circumcises to enhance his ministry. Titus, he will not circumcise to expose the false doctrine of that Jewish sect of believers in the church. And so here the Lord Jesus Christ went right ahead. You know, Solomon wrote something similar in Proverbs chapter 26. He said, answer a fool in one verse. Next verse, answer not a fool. There's a time to answer a fool, to shut his mouth and his mind. There's a time not to answer a fool, lest you be like him. By engaging in back and forth junk that has no profit or virtue. Verse 15, then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. The reason that we have the word again and the reason we have the word also is because the neighbors and travelers had asked how he had received his sight. So it's being repeated now by the Pharisees. He said unto them, he put clay upon mine eyes and I washed and do see. So they're asking the same question, but they want to know more details. He did not embellish any aspect. 
His explanation was beautifully honest, simple, and straightforward for the truth. He didn't show any emotional excess. Verse 16, Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God. This man Jesus that you're telling us about that cured your blindness is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them, a division over the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a division over the Lord Jesus Christ always. And we want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. When we see the picture of a Jesus, it is not a picture of the Jesus of the Bible. When we hear about Christian baptism, 95% of the time, it's not the baptism of the Bible. It's not the baptism of the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible was baptized at Jordan, near Jordan, around Jordan, with Jordan, from a canteen, or in Jordan. What does the Bible say? In Jordan. He went down into the water. He came up out of the water. And yet we have to, we are in a war for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is another Jesus in the world, and there are far more that follow the other Jesus than follow the true Jesus. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 11, I fear about you Corinthians because you've allowed false teachers into this church that have denied the resurrection of the dead and other things. I fear that if they preach another Jesus and bring another spirit and preach another gospel, you'll bear with them. And then he went on to say they are truly messengers of Satan. They pretend that they are angels of light, but they are messengers of, messengers of Satan. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Lord, save us from all such. Help us, Heavenly Father. Look at the division. This, this verse, and this, the last sentence of it, verse 16, there was a division among them. Because some said, this man cannot be of God because he broke the Sabbath. Others said, he's obviously got divine power. He has to be of God. And so they were divided. And here we get to make our, we get to take our stand right now. Are we going to side with the Pharisees, the fundamentalists, the religiously trained, the seminary graduates? Are we going to stand with the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the testimony of the man born blind? And we do it on every subject. Are we willing to be fools for Jesus' sake with baptism? Do you know how beautiful a child's christening is in a Catholic church? It is It is beautiful. Have you ever seen a christening gown? It's beautiful. Don't you dare. He knows better than I do with his family background, some of it. Christening. Whole big elaborate ritual. You get to invite friends in, godparents. Oh, such an honor. You've made me your godparent, godmother, godfather. Celebrate. Candles. Beautiful. Celebrate. Go out to eat. And what do we do? Where can we find some water deep enough to stuff somebody under and raise them back up so it looks like a burial and a resurrection right. with our clothes on? It's beautiful. I love the Lord. He puts spit mud in our eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He says, go find some water that's deep enough to get into and look like a burial and bury and raise again from the dead. Are, you, are we going to continue to do that? 
that's going to make us divisive. Right. You know, we don't, we don't like division. We love peace and unity. We love joy and happiness. We, we love love. And yet, because we want to stand the Bible, we'll get into trouble just like this man is getting into trouble. And he's, he's in trouble. There ought to be celebration over him seeing, but instead he's in trouble for the man that did it and for the time of the doing of it. This man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. They started by rejecting Jesus' divine mission due to adoration of a sacrament. And the sacrament in this case was the Sabbath day. They allowed work on this day for their beasts, but not to Jesus for a blind man. They should have started with the evidence of divine power and then asked respectfully how he did it on the Sabbath day. Try to reason with a Catholic sometime. They'll resort to one or other such argument and just shut you down. They do not care about objective truth of any kind. You can ask them about the objective truth of that wafer they put in their mouths and later defecate. You can ask them about the chemical analysis of it, the nutritional analysis of it, what happens to it in their mouth. Does it taste like God in body, blood, soul, and divinity, or does it taste like a little wafer? They, they don't care about objective truth like that. And if you look at nations of the world that are primarily Catholic, you will see the the ignorance and the blindness and the superstition there. In other nations where Catholicism does not reign, the people have been unchained and are able to do so much more because they can think outside the box of a lie. These Pharisees could not, would not think outside the box of a lie. They were afraid of losing their jobs. They were afraid of losing their temple. They didn't care about the God of the temple. They cared about the gold of the temple. Can we find that in various places? They did not care about the God of the temple. It's terrible. It's our duty to weigh the evidence to determine if we should believe on Jesus. That's what it's here for. That's what John 9 is here for, for us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. John had recorded for us Jesus' righteous judgment about it, about the Sabbath day and violating it. We do not say those holding doctrine different from us are not saved Christians. You know, as we look at a verse like this, this division, we don't like division. Would to God... There were 2 billion real Christians on earth. Right. Now there are 2.3 so-called billion, 2.3 billion so-called Christians on earth, but only a few of them are real Christians. Real Christians sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God of the apostles. Only a few. A few million, a few percentage points. Lord help us. You know, when we look at a place like this, and it tells us about division, and we see the Pharisees saying one thing and others saying another thing, we have to say at times, that's heresy. We have to say at times, that's a heretic. And so I just want to pass over this because I get this question a lot by people writing into us. We do not say those holding doctrine different from us are not saved Christians. We don't say that when we use the word heresy. This is a point about our church you need to know and grasp so that you can use it with others that ask about us. Why are you saying everybody's going to hell that doesn't believe the way you do? We've never said that or implied that. Right. We, of all people in this church, believe that less than you believe it. You can say that to the person accusing us of that. Because we don't believe that. We don't believe that it's the amount of truth a person believes that gets them to heaven. We believe that it's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ right. that gets them to heaven. The Galatians were going to heaven even though they had taken in false teachers from Jerusalem 
that were teaching them to add circumcision and the law of Moses to the finished work of Christ. Paul said you're fallen from grace, but he didn't mean they'd fallen from grace and their names in the book of life because they were going to heaven as surely afterwards as they were before. You're fallen from the right understanding and doctrine of grace by imbibing the law of Moses as part of the redemptive work. We may call people heretics from time to time and we're pressed to do so since it's God's word for wrong doctrine. What does the word heretic mean? What does the word heresy mean? Heresy is wrong doctrine. What does heretic mean? A person holding wrong doctrine. So sometimes we use the word because it's the Bible word. Are we saying that all heretics are going to hell? No. Were the Galatians heretics? Yes. Were the Corinthians heretics? Yes. Will there be heresies among us? Yes. How do we know? 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. 19. There must be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest. Right. Whenever we exclude someone, and we've done it sometimes for heresy, actually everything's a heresy if it's disobedience against God's commandments, but when we exclude someone, we have a prayer. We turn them over to Satan, according to the instructions of 1 Corinthians 5, for the destruction of the flesh. That their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We do not condemn all heretics to hell by bad doctrine any more than we would condemn the Corinthians or the Galatians to hell or others in the New Testament that had fallen into false doctrine. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? Since they knew that all men were sinners, they meant this in some particular way. And the some particular way is sinning against the Sabbath. How How can a man that broke the Sabbath just now, do such miracles. Something's going on here that we should find out about. And yes, they should have found out about. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who was the Lord of the Sabbath and could set it aside and could tell us how to set it aside and on what basis. Back there a little while ago, we were in Matthew chapter 12 where David is brought up in the showbread and the the argument there and the principle that Jesus gave there is, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy is more important than sacrifice. But Mark's account of the very same event in Mark 2, the Sabbath was not, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. And so it gives us the spirit and the principle of intent. These are principles of wisdom taught in the Bible. What was the Sabbath for? Is seven, the seventh day of the week, so special and important to God that he wants to press men to keep it? Or did he love men, especially his people Israel, and wanted them to get every seventh day off from work? The latter is the truth. And so we look at the intent of a commandment. And we keep the intent. Can a blind man observe the Sabbath better, blind or seeing? Can an impotent man observe the Sabbath better and get refreshment from it, impotent, or being able to leap and walk and run, and, and run around? And you know the answer to that. And so the Lord Jesus taught us all those things. There was a division among them. That is just terrible. A division among them. 
That little chapter that you read last evening in preparation for Malachi chapter 4 describes that difference. That some were going to be ashes under the feet of others. And that is not in the future. That is in the past by 1947 years. Because that's the destruction of Jerusalem when they did not heed the warning of Elijah the prophet that was sent to them, who was John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 17, John the Baptist was that Elijah the prophet to come to warn the people of Israel. They did not heed him. They did not heed the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ sent the armies of the Romans and encircled that city, just as he told them expressly, Luke 19, Luke 21, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and destroyed that city. What a difference. What a difference. And so when we come in here, we want to warn each other, encourage each other, comfort each other, and press each other to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Division was common among the Jews. Like Christians today, the Jews took a party position and ignored difficulties with it. They didn't want to really answer the question. They wanted to condemn the Savior. Do you understand the tremendous blessing or punishment of truth or error? It's huge. This is, there's practical differences, huge, in the nation of Israel that we're witnesses to. Truth brings freedom, hope, power, life, and wisdom. Truth destroys bondage, confusion, error, fear, worry, and other dysfunctional aspects of life. Think about priests and nuns and their celibacy and the sexual sins that it's caused in the Church of Rome and all the child abuse that goes on in the Church of Rome because of the lie of celibacy. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've shown us. The true followers of Jesus will be hated by those that hate Jesus or that love another Jesus. So there's going to be hatred. Jesus said, if they've hated me and I'm the master, guess what they're going to do toward his servants? They're going to hate you as well. Lord, help us to stand firm and true with your son and his truth. If you press the truth of the gospel on most Christians, the truth of the gospel, all that it claims from our lives, you will find out that there's very few that like you. Try pressing. The wonderful Christians you know, here's just a little sampling about Christmas, election, destruction of Jerusalem, musical instruments, limited atonement, women speaking in church, the King James Bible, alcohol, baptism and dogmatism about it, which comes first, Christ or Antichrist from 2 Thessalonians 2, etc., etc., etc. Just like in this day, it was church members that were the most dangerous to Jesus and the apostles, the church members of the Jewish church. Verse 17, they say unto the blind man again. So they have another question they want to bring up. What sayest thou of him? that he hath opened thine eyes. He said, he's a prophet. Do you remember the woman of Samaria? Jesus tells her, that's true that you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. What you've said is true. Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now, that's, that's, part way, that's getting partway there. I know that when Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all things. Well, he's speaking to you right now. That is, that's John chapter 4. 
And it's beautiful and it's going to happen right here. But at this point, a prophet, a man with a divine message from God, having the power of God. And that's all he could see at this point. So his vision wasn't perfect yet, but it's going to be perfect in just a few minutes, which we will not be getting to today for sure. He is a prophet. This was a halfway position many not fully converted held about Jesus Christ. When Jesus asked his apostles, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, some think you're Jeremiah, some think you're this prophet, some think you're this prophet, some think you're John the Baptist. Well, what do you think that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter said that. And Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood hath not revealed that unto thee, which explained why all the seminary graduates did not know who Jesus was, even with all the prophecies of their scriptures. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And upon this rock I will build my church, and that rock is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that church was built, and the gates of hell did not did not keep it away from turning this world upside down. Right. Preached in the world and belie- believed on in the world and preached unto the Gentiles. This man will be completely instructed about the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the chapter. Do you believe on Jesus Christ today? Amen. Look at what happened to this man. Was there a, was there a prol- an, an initial benefit of being able to see physically? Yes. Will there be another benefit that follows of being able to see spiritually? Yes. Will he know the Lord personally? Yes. But look what happens. Questioned, persecuted, excluded, hated by the most religious people. Not of paganism, not of Islam, of the monotheistic religion of the Jews, of God's religion of Abraham's religion, distorted, misapplied, because they didn't see the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a greater miracle of divine power for you to see, believe, understand, and obey Jesus Christ than to make a man born blind see. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 would say that it took the same power to quicken us from our death and trespasses and sins to see his son as it took to raise Jesus from the dead. That's why it's called a quickening. Being resurrected or raised from the dead. God showed that power in Jesus Christ. He's shown that power in our lives or we would not see Christ. We would not care about Christ. Our heart would be waxed gross. Our ears would be stopped up. Our eyes would not see. We would not be converted. We would not love the Son of God. But he has saved us. And it's not flesh and blood that did it for us. It's our Father which is in heaven. No man can come to me except my Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. He's going to raise us up at the last day. This is pretty dramatic. The Lord Jesus Christ, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. But there's some drama coming that's far greater than this. He's going to raise every dead body. It doesn't matter what's happened to that dead body from the grave, reconstitute all those cells back together into one body, and we will all stand before God, and those for whom Jesus Christ died shall be uttered into eternal bliss, and the rest shall be cast in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
incredible day coming. Jesus taught about it in John chapter 5 when he was on trial for his life and they were falsely accusing him there. He warned them what was coming. The Father hath committed all judgment unto me. And the Father loveth the Son. When we love the Son, we love the Father. When we neglect the Son, we neglect the Father. There are consequences that follow. Let us love the Son. Let us love Him more. Let us encourage each other to love Him more. He's coming soon. And He will not be in a state of humility then. He'll be in a state of glory. May the Lord bless the preaching of His word.